Everyone Pays Official Release Audio. boys back yeah seth harwood is here back in your ear for the release of everyone pays welcome 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 i am happy to have you back for those of you who've been longtime listeners you will recognize that introduction and this background music for those of you who do not recognize it and are new welcome welcome for the first time and the You'll find plenty more to listen to on iTunes and Podio Books if you want more Seth Harwood audio. Plenty for your ears. But today, this brings us to a special event, which is the release of my new novel, Everyone Pays. This is the first book that I haven't podcasted in its entirety and released to you guys free. It's available now as an ebook, a print copy, and as a recorded audiobook by professionals. Yeah, they got two people to do the voices for this. They did it professionally, and I've listened to it, and I really enjoyed it a lot. I hope you guys will check that out. Unfortunately, I can't offer it to you free, publisher contract and all. But I really hope that you guys, the longtime listeners, will go out and check out the book, read the ebook, read the print copy. I've got a link on the website for you to get signed copies from me. And I really hope that you will drop an awesome five-star Amazon or Goodreads or both reviews. I'll be back to talk to you much more after the episode today, which is the beginning of the new book. A couple of segments there to get you excited, even some basketball in it. This is recorded from a reading I did last week at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. Thanks to the people there for having me out. Thanks to Ann Smith for coming. Wonderful time there at the University of Hawaii. Very hot and tropical. Very awesome time. I won't waste any more of your ear space. Just to tell you, this one is safe for your minivans. So put those earphones in your kids. No more talking, just bring it on. Wait, wait, I gotta tell you one more thing, and that's to head over to SethHarwood.com. There's a new website there, all new content. I hope you'll sign up for the email list. And no more talking, just bring it on. Okay, okay, here it is. So this is uh, the prologue of Everyone Pays. It wasn't enough that she was with me. What woke me at three in the morning were her sins, original and then some. She had been with men, her secrets, what they did to her, the things she had endured. I knew they were hidden, the scars I could see, the secrets I couldn't, what they did to her body. I listened to her breathe as she slept, the subtle wheeze of her rest, until I couldn't stand it any longer. I got up, felt the cold stone floor under my feet, poured water for coffee. The window let in a damp breeze from the rain, so I tucked her in tight. Outside, all was dark. The street above our basement room was quiet for the time being. During the day, I hear confessions, save souls. But I did things in my past that would shame a heathen. All the atoning in the world wouldn't save me. Then she came to me, the innocent I might still save. I saved her body not her soul, treated her and nursed her back to health, protected her. 
but her soul wasn't clean yet, wasn't ready to greet him, not yet. All she had done needed cleansing, erasing, the things she did, the men who did them to her. I would work back through these sins, start where they began. These men needed to be brought to him, to judgment. Only in this way could she be absolved. But first, the men. I started with two names. So that's the first narrator, who we find out later is named Michael. Um, And then from there, we go straight to the main character, who's Clara Donner, a San Francisco homicide detective, who we meet as she's investigating crime scenes that this guy has left behind. And so here I present to you chapter one. Our first call of the week took us to a man's apartment in the marina. Not the nicest place on the block, even a little on the small side, but that had no bearing on the extent of what we found. The building was a four-story walk-up with the victim's place on the third. Small black and white squares tiled the downstairs hall, reminding me of the floors in lower Manhattan buildings where I'd grown up. I climbed the stairs with Hendricks behind me, neither of us dragging. It was only our first day on call. When we arrived at the apartment, uniformed officers in blue stepped aside to clear our path. I could see by their eyes that they were ready to turn this one over, get as far away from the scene as they could. A rookie I didn't recognize gave me me a double take, confused about a woman working homicide, thinking I shouldn't walk into this kind of mess. Or maybe he could tell I didn't mind, and that's what caused his confusion. And I didn't mind. It was my job. I was a homicide investigator like my father before me, just on the other coast. I would have driven, it would have driven him mad to see a woman working these cases, and maybe that's why I got involved in the first place. Now, I wouldn't give this up for the world. As we walked in, my favorite medical examiner met us in the hallway, Dr. Marlene Abaca, who always wore a smile, even in the worst situations. This was that rare occasion when she didn't. We all have our weaknesses, the things that get to us. God knows I have mine. Guy has his own dungeon in here, Donna, a real sleaze bag. She pointed at a bookcase just inside the entry. You'll want to check out the Vic's picks. I found myself facing a shelf of Polaroids featuring skinny young blondes tied up and mostly nude or in various states of undress. A few had fresh cuts, blood dripping. Bondage, S&M, and torture. These could be bought in San Francisco like bread and milk, the rice of the streets. Hendricks leaned in over my shoulder. Lovely citizen we got here, Donner, the kind of turd you like to bag and tag. Careful, I said. He was right. The guy who lived here, our victim in this case, was the kind of perp I loved to take down during my four years on vice. Now homicide put me on the other side of the line, investigating his killer, walking into a job I might have fantasized about doing myself. But I couldn't talk about that here, not even as a joke. One pick is missing, I said. There was a gap in the middle of the shelf, just the right size for another photo. Already in my notes, Ibaka said. Come on, you gotta see this. She led us off the hall into a side office that had been fitted with pads covering the walls and floor. A padded cell, his dungeon, no windows. One wall had handcuffs mounted high, medium, and low. The high ones had held the wrists of the women in his photos. With their arms raised, they'd have barely towed the floor. Thick black blood pooled in a corner. That his? Your lucky day. 
Ibach appointed at more of the mess. All this came from the owner of this nice little enclave. I clapped my hands. Well, I'm done here. Hendricks? He laughed his fake laugh. Ha, ha. Now we work this. You bet. I hit him on the shoulder. How old is the blood? We put the body at eight hours. Abaka tilted her head toward the back of the apartment. Perp left him in back on his bed, but it looks like he did the business of it in here. I wanted to spit, get the stench and taste of the place out of my mouth, but couldn't contaminate the scene. The last thing I wanted was some tech picking up my DNA and submitting it, throwing a, layer, throwing a lawyer grounds for dismissal if we ever got into court. That and the jokes I'd hear about being one of this idiot's tricks. Instead, I hawked a greener into a coffee napkin from my pocket. That cleared the taste, but not the spell. Hendrick started back over the particulars. I'd read them out loud in the car, but sometimes going over them again at a crime scene helped us develop our process. Victim is a white male, last of Piper, first of Jay. 34, lived alone, no criminal record, employed by a tech firm downtown. Never married, no kids, blah, blah, blah. He, the no he scanned the notes. Upstairs tenant comes home, sees the Vic's door open, pokes his head in to make sure everything's okay. It isn't. He finds the blood in here, gets upset, runs home, and calls the Northern. When they get on scene, they find the body and call us. Neighbor didn't stick around to see the body? Apparently not. Ivaka and I shook our heads. Our kind of curiosity was definitely not universal. Hendrick said, did I miss anything? That. I pointed to the floor beneath the cuffs. What is it? Ibaka and I answered at the same time. It was one of the Vic's little toes. So that's a good chunk of chapter one for you guys to get a taste of it. And now I just wanted to present chapter three, which is a little more fun and gives you a sense of Claire Donner's outside life. Chapter three. That night I had to blow off steam, so I went to the Potrero Rec Center, a gym near my condo that had open courts four nights a week. Basketball for the guys mostly, but on plenty of occasions, I brought the discomfort of having a girl in the mix. Ever since junior high, basketball had been my release, my way away from whatever troubled me. Now I played to get away from the vision of bodies, the thoughts of pain, memories of my Achilles tear that had come up at Piper's apartment. I shot by myself on a corner basket while a three-on-three -three went on at the other end. Hooking in layups from both sides, my own mic and drill, not only built up a good sweat, but also helped with everything going on in my head. Almost everything, that is. Even shooting around can't take away some things. Like what it was like being single at my age. Watching all your friends first get married and then start having kids. Now I was old enough that they were starting rounds of divorces. Definitely not something I minded missing out on, especially with kids in tow. As the daughter of a single-parent father, I knew all about what it was like growing up in a broken home. Not that my dad hadn't done everything he could, anything possible to give me a leg up in the world, but like I was relearning my own, in my own life, the days, nights, and long hours of a homicide investigator didn't leave room for much else. On a break from shooting, I watched the guys play three-on-three -on, -three on the other court. They were into their second game, all of them sweating and holding their knees at any opportunity. They were tired and out of shape, which was true for most of the guys my age or older who still played. Usually I waited until they were winded before I asked into the game. Tonight, none of the regulars who knew me were around, though, so I had to give the guy thing its wide berth. Some didn't like to play with a girl. 
a woman, sergeant, investigator, hot chick, whatever they called me in life or out on the street, even if they called me for a date. Here on the court, I was always a girl. And that suited me fine. They were guys, I was a girl. And if I could come in and show a few of them I could play, even drop a few outside shots on them, and get them to play real defense, I was winning a personal battle all my own. I dribbled in zigzags with my left hand, still watching their game, waiting for my chance. One guy was good, an Asian kid in his late 20s with a nice body and a full head of hair. He faked, then drove by his man after a quick crossover and laid it in. His teammates gave him high fives, but the one guarding him was pissed. I had to laugh. It really was a nice move. I started flipping the ball out to myself with backspin, gathering it, then popping jumpers from the elbows. Shoot, rebound, dribble to the other side, flip it out, catch, turn, and shoot, all in rhythm. It felt good, the back and forth. Images from Pipers and thoughts of my Achilles near, tear nearly forgotten. Hey, you want to play? I turned toward the game. One of the older players had pulled up lame, something with his hamstring or quad, it looked like. Everyone else stood around, hands on hips. At this late hour, we were the only ones here. With no one else to ask, they all looked at me. What do you say, the young Asian guy asked. This close up, I could see he was cute. I'll play. I bounced my ball into the bleachers and jogged, and jogged over to their end, trying not to look like a happy puppy whose owner had just picked up the leash. A bald guy in good shape with a handlebar mustache passed me the ball on the bounce. He was shirtless, clearly confident in his frame. Take a few shots, he said. Get used to the weight. I dribbled a little, then passed it right back to him. I'm good. Ooh, his friends teased. Nobody wanted to be shown up by a girl, which was the main reason it was hard for me to play with them. Anyone guarding me was in a lose-lose situation. If I did well, they looked bad. But if they were actually trying, then they looked bad too. Maybe I liked making guys look bad. Maybe I liked it a lot. This guy was okay though. He smiled instead of getting upset. My bad, he said. This girl knows her balls. What can I say? The others laughed. I had to smile. Call it an extension of the hall of justice, the locker room, or whatever. I just managed to gravitate toward these situations. Instead of explaining that I always shot with a guy's ball, I said, who's my team? The cute guy poised himself, pointed to himself and a white guy my age wearing a swoosh t-shirt and SB dunks. I was already unimpressed, but I knew I had one good player to work with. Turns out the game was already half over, 13 to 11 with my guys up and the game to 16. For some reason, I had never liked playing to even numbers. No idea what it is, but back home we always played to 15 or 11, and that felt better. Never 16. Sometimes 21, though that was a different game altogether. What's your name? I held out my hand. Clara. We shook hands, too formal. Alan. Or Claire is cool, too. On the court, little details like how to say my name didn't matter. I offered the option so people could choose what they thought was easiest. Honestly, I'd have been fine with just C. S.B. Dunks was named Edgar. The oldest, shortest, slowest guy from the other team stepped up to guard me. He was in his late 40s, I guessed. Bearded Caucasian male, 155 pounds. This would be fun. Alan checked it up and passed off to me. 
I dribbled my guy around the circle, watching Alan to see what he would do. When he caught my eye and went back door, I scorched a pass in off the bounce, exactly where he wanted it. He laid it right up and in off the glass. 14-11. Nice. Edgar slapped my hand, and then when Alan ran by, patted his butt. I didn't need to be one of the guys like that. I could get posted up, guys would get a little touchy, but mostly I stayed away from hands on my ass. I checked it and passed to Alan on the wing. He faked a drive, jab-stepped, then faked a shot. His man bit, and Alan took two dribbles toward the middle, just enough to pull my man in, and then passed it to me on the opposite wing for a wide-open jumper. I took the shot, hit it, all net, and everyone stopped playing. It was only then that I realized they were playing ones and twos, and that I'd lined up just outside the three-point line from force of habit. I'd ended the game without even knowing it. Good shot, Alan said. We touched hands. Then the old guy with the hamstring, with the hamstring problem jogged back onto the court, and Mustache passed him the ball. Run it back, someone said. And just like that, I was on the outside again heading over to my own hoop to shoot around by myself. I glanced over my shoulder, and Alan winked. That was a nice pass, he said. Maybe I'll see you next time? Yeah, I said. Cool. I went over to retrieve my own ball and shot around for a few more minutes before I got bored. I decided to head home. Once I got the rush of a game, shooting around didn't cut it anymore. And there you have it. Old time fans and listeners to the Crime Wave will recognize this background music as well. Of course, it's the No Name Bar by Curtis Mayfield off the Superfly soundtrack. What else? That's what we give you here at SethHarwood.com and Crime Wave. Thanks so much for listening to this preview of the new novel, Everyone Pays. I'm really excited about this release. It is my fourth with Thomas and Mercer. That is, if you count the re-releases of Jack Palms 2 and Young Junius, which you guys all know both released separately at other times in other worlds. But this is the second big release from Thomas and Mercer. Really excited about all the publicity and marketing that they do around it. Really exciting to see what we can do with it as it climbs up the Amazon charts. So, I know you're sitting there asking, Yo, Seth, you always give me all this great audio. What can I do to help you? Because I've gotten all these free books. Well, I'll tell you. First of all, you can go and give great reviews to all my stuff on Amazon and Goodreads. In all situations, that means five stars. I hate to be a stickler about this, and I know that some of you save your five-star reviews for Great Gatsby, Ernest Hemingway, Anton Chekhov, William Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor, and the great writer J.K. Rowling. But I have to say that when my averages are in between four reviews and four stars and five stars, it's those five star reviews that really help out. So, gotta be five stars. I appreciate it. I love you. I love any review that you post, but the five star reviews are the ones that really do help. So, please, reviews at Amazon and Goodreads are super awesome. And telling anyone that you think might be interested in my stuff about this podcast, this website, the new release, everyone pays, buy someone a copy, 
buy your pal a copy, send an ebook to a friend. The ebooks are only $4.99 or something like that as it starts out. I hope that you'll chip in and buy a couple. Please do get it close to release day so that we can make some sort of climb up the charts. But also, just do the best you can to help out. I really appreciate your feedback. I love hearing from you guys by email or by contact form or on Facebook or Twitter. If you head over to SethHarwood.com, you will see the new website that I just finished with pals Jason and Mike. Jason Andrews has been working on my stuff for a long time, and I owe him a giant thank you. Mike has just started pitching in with new graphics. Check them out. Check out the new website. I'm working on getting an email list sign-up form on the new website, so that should be soon. Please sign the email list. Join it if you haven't already. I'll be sending out emails around the release, but not too many, you know. I like to keep it brief, and I like to give most of my updates to you just like this by audio. So I hope you're subscribed. I hope you're spreading the word. Tell your friends about it on Facebook and Twitter. Here's the part where the outro kind of peters out for a little bit. It gets a little slow-mo, low-low, and then it comes back like mad at the end. Also on the website is a new Q&A page. Check it out. Drop a line. That's a good place for us to have a conversation or talk. And... I'm also on Facebook. There's the author page over there at facebook.com slash author Seth Harwood and just the regular Seth Harwood Facebook. You can find me over there. That's where I lurk even more than Twitter. Um, and it's always good to hear from you guys. Drop a friend request. Drop a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads and tell your friends about it. That's all I can really say. What's been going on with me? Boom, music comes back in. Nice horns there. Uh, I have been on the East Coast for a while, raising my daughter, writing a fair amount. I've got a great new Jack Palms book that I have in the works. It's a little bit on the back burner as I work on the sequel to Everyone Pays, the second novel with major character Clara Donner. I, I also would like to bring back your friend Jess Harding at some point. I know many of you miss her and want more of her action after In Broad Daylight. That will happen. But the Jack Palms book is very exciting. It's called Maltese Jordans, and that's the only preview that I can give you for here. Maybe I can give more audio soon. But this is it for Everyone Pays. I hope you guys will check out the book and read it. I know you've enjoyed my work in the past, and now's the time that you got to pony up to either read it or get the professional audiobook on CD or MP3 from Amazon. Links in the show notes to how you can do all that. Regular way to head over to SethHarwood.com for all the news there. And as we head out, I'll play the Q&A for the reading at University of Hawaii. If any of you are interested in hearing some of the discussion there and some of the reading, stick around, put it in your ears, listen to it. I thank you, I miss you, and I wish you all the best. Stay criminal. Man, let me also just say I forgot completely how much work it takes to put in these 
podcast episodes, make the audio, and do the blog posts. And that was some serious work that I did for a while. Thanks for all your patronage and listening. Man, I might not be back in audio for a little bit. But take care. Listen to this. That's enough, man. <laughs> Thanks. Good. So that is uh, the first chapter. So that's the prologue, and then the first chapter goes in that direction where it sort of gets dark, and uh, the basketball stuff comes in a little later to lighten it up, sort of like a one-two punch, I now realize. But in writing it, I wasn't so much thinking along those lines. Yeah. So um, I'm happy to take any questions and answer them for you. Otherwise, I'll ask you questions, which will be really uncomfortable. Um, it was a couple of years ago, it was 2010, I was reading the um, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo books, and it seemed like they were doing really well, and I was trying to figure out why. It seemed like there were huge chunks of those books that should have been edited out by any measure, and so I was like, so why are these books doing so well? And I thought that the, the female character um, really brought something to it, so I wanted to try doing that, and so that was when I wrote In Broad Daylight. Um, which featured uh, a female character who was an FBI investigator named Jess Donner, or Jess Harding. Uh, and then I started writing this one after that, and it just felt like it was a female character, but she was different. Like, she wasn't FBI. She was much grittier, and she worked for the police department in San Francisco. She was facing a very different... Um, line of criminals and filth and uh, it just wound up being a different character but I you know I was interested in the the, the female narrator as well I've yeah I confess that I've started thinking a little bit about uh, audience and um, readership as an author and so I sometimes I do things like that to see like you know, is this going to fit better with a larger readership? And I think about that stuff sometimes, which may or may not be a good thing. Probably is not. But I face up to it. Do you yeah. think Yeah, I think it's true. There's definitely some softening of the sense of. So the reality is that the majority of people who buy these books and read these books are women. Um, and there's kind of, you know, everybody loves Jack Reacher and Bosch has his thing. And every a lot of people think Reacher is like some superhero, awesome, hot guy. But um, there's a way in which uh, books written by men that have male main characters sort of get pushed off into the... Um, I don't know what you would call it, but it's kind of like a male fiction section. And it seems like that sort of cuts off a certain amount of readership. Um, so, yeah. Wait, what was the question? Just think people respond. Yeah, I think people respond better to the female one. And they're like, wow, what made you try to write that character? Or how do you know what it's like for a woman? Um, 
So I, I have a sister who I'm pretty close with, and the first book had a lot to do with her. And the cool thing about this book was that um, my publisher picked a developmental editor for me who happened to be a woman who has played basketball. And she, um, she was reading the book at a conference and like wound up like calling her husband at night to like read these passages to him because she was really excited about the basketball parts from the woman's perspective. So um, yeah, it's cool to like, that kind of stuff is really, um, it's really rewarding when you try something that's out of your own spectrum and you feel like you get it right. Uh, with Young Junius, I wrote a book with a lot of African-American characters and that felt like a really big risk, like um, really putting myself out there in a way that I was likely to get criticized. Uh, so having done that and had that well received, um, it feels like writing women is even easier. Yeah. Um, did you have to do, uh, what kind of research did you have to do to embody these different subject positions? I mean, as like, uh, you know, you're speaking in first person um, women, and yeah. The African American stuff was a lot of stuff that I just sort of grew up being a part of and having all around me. Um, so that was a lot of internal stuff that I could just pull from my own experiences. Um, yeah, and that sort of just came from somewhere and I did that. This stuff, you know, the hard part for me is making the procedural stuff, like the police work and things like that really make sense and seem accurate. And so there, um, I've spent some time with police officers doing ride-alongs and stuff like that. Uh, but I have some sources on the police that I go to a lot. Um, and I ask them questions or, or see what it's like and um, sort of pick their brains about things that come up. And so people, you know, like anyone, people like talking about their work. So if you get the right people, they'll talk to you about um, what's going on with their job. The interesting thing is now, yeah, there's been a lot of killings in San Francisco recently by police officers and um, it's really controversial right now that San Francisco is like one of the few cities that doesn't use tasers um, and so basically like all my sources like won't talk to me about that they're like we can't talk about that at all so that's kind of funny because usually they're really open to me but as soon as I start asking them about tasers they're all like we can't talk about this but I know other people who are using tasers in the East Bay and stuff like that so it's interesting, but um, yeah, I would say that the more, the longer I've been writing, the more I've started to do research. And so, um, yeah, like I, I, you know, I wanna get the, the procedural stuff right. Uh, I look into that. Last year I had a research assistant. Um, one of the places where I was teaching gave me a research assistant and I, I wanted someone who could help me with the religious stuff, because I didn't grow up with Catholicism, and one of the characters in here is a, um, a priest. And so I got this woman who was like the best researcher ever. She actually works for Homeland Security, is a student, uh, knew all about the religious stuff, and was an awesome basketball player who was like really good in high school and in college. So most the funny thing is that I, I got her for the, um, for the religious stuff, and then most of the stuff that I ended up using from her was her own experiences with basketball. So just like her like writing about it a lot really brought the basketball stuff in for me. 
and I ended up adding all the basketball stuff really late in the game uh, after most of the plotting was done, just because I was sort of inspired by this. So yeah, I was talking in Shauna's class about how research, it's hard as writers to sort of feel like you're doing the right amount of work. We always seem to feel like we should be doing more. And so lately I've been giving myself credit for um, the research time for it. So like I'll spend a couple hours reading about tasers or like literally watching this guy. A week ago this guy got gunned down in San Francisco. On There was a video, uh, a security camera on one of the buildings and the guy got shot like right in front of the security camera. And that night or the next day, it was on the website for the biggest paper in the New York City. So like everyone is watching these guys like basically get out of their car and blow this guy away. And you know, it's just the thing that I'm dealing with now is trying to get my head around like how that affects police work. Like it can't not affect everyone's job who's on the police when everyone in the city is like, you guys are killing people. Um, so I'm trying to get in touch with sources there, uh, and they're sort of talking about it, but not, because it's, it's sort of a real political mess right now. Also, the guy who I'm renting a house from is the assistant district attorney where I live. So he was reading this, and he said there was one thing. I don't really know anything about warrants. So this one thing happened, and he's like, oh, I was thinking when I got to that part that maybe they should have gotten a warrant for that. And I was like, uh-oh. There's going to be something that comes on later in the book that is really you're not going to like. Because there's this one thing that's procedurally pretty inaccurate. But if you watch these TV shows, they do like the worst stuff you would ever imagine. So you have to have some sort of license with it. And so sure enough, like I got a text from him the next day that was like all caps, like, they can't do that, <laughs> which was funny. But um, yeah, just talking to people, really. People like talking about their stuff. And you know, just learning from people in your lives, like my sister, my wife, yeah. It's good. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of that comes from reading as well. Like, you can read a lot of first-person accounts of what it's like for officers to be in certain situations. Um, this one guy from Hayward uh, was teaching at a school that I was teaching at. He was teaching um, law enforcement classes, and he ended up retiring and writing a couple of books about what it was like for him to be on the job. Um, and so reading stuff like that, reading um, David Simon and Richard Price, uh, watching good TV shows. I don't watch the CSI and the Law and Order and all that because it seems really junky to me. But watching better stuff, I feel like I get in the sense of it. And then 
just sort of cultivating relationships with these people. Like I started doing ride-alongs, and then the guy that I was doing ride-alongs with, it was just that they, their normal way of going about was just to have one guy in the car. So he and I would be in the car together, and we would get to talking, and we were sort of at similar life places. Um, so we became friends, and so now I sort of talk to him about stuff or like ping him on uh, gun questions. And um, there's a couple of women in the San Francisco homicide, in the San Francisco police on homicide, who I've talked to a fair amount, and they give you really good insights into like how they approach the case, what they're thinking about. But you know, one of the things too is that you have to know like when too much research, when research is too much. Like some people do research and then they don't write, and they're doing research for six months or something. But sometimes. If you're writing something and you start to learn a lot about how things procedurally work while you're writing it, you can realize that like, oh, all this stuff that I did is like not entirely right, but I didn't know that when I was writing that. Uh, so sometimes you can find out too much and it can sort of sink things because if you spend all your time trying to make it really real, it can get boring. Like I don't think that people want to read about some guy having to get a warrant to like search this guy's room and this and that, I mean, you see those parts on the wire and it's like they run to the judge and then they like go do something else and it's not the most exciting stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we do our best to really get into the characters' heads, but I think a lot of that comes out of the writing process, just really imagining the character and working your way into them as you go through the piece.